This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining me today. Today we're going to talk about uh, defending and winning uh, the defense of motions for med and temp in New Jersey. Uh, to do that today I'm going to give a little bit of a discussion about the standard for medical care in New Jersey, uh, the rules surrounding medical care, when we can end medical care under the statute, um, we're going to talk about different types of motions for med and temp, the standard motion versus an emergent motion. Uh, we're going to talk about the defenses we typically raise to a motion for med and temp. Uh, I'm going to give some practical advice about uh, how those defenses should be raised and when. And just for fun and to spice this up, I'm going to talk a little bit about medicinal marijuana, uh, which uh, has become quite an issue in New Jersey in the last year, including uh, very recently with the appellate division giving us a new case law on it. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. I hope you're here uh, to do a little learning, but I also hope you've brought some questions for us. This is completely and totally live, and so I am really looking forward to getting some questions uh, from you. Uh, you can type the questions in, and I will answer as many as I can at the end. Uh, I really think a successful webinar is one in which a lot of questions come in because it just makes it so much more fun for me uh, and for you. Uh, I will not say your full name. I'll just say your first name and then read your question and then answer it for everybody in the group. All right, uh, let's dive in. Let's talk a little bit about medical treatment in New Jersey. New Jersey is one of the few states in which uh, we can direct and control medical care. Now, medical care is a mandatory component of our workers' compensation uh, responsibility, and uh, the statute clearly says that we have to provide all necessary and curative care. So I've put the statute up on the screen, and this really means anything that's going to restore function, uh, reduce pain and suffering, and get the claimant to their highest functional state. Uh, New Jersey does award benefits uh, simply for injury. The claimant does not have to show permanent impairment. Uh, this is a state in which uh, the scheduled loss of use awards, hands, finger, feet, and toes, and permanent partial disability are based on the injury, not on impairment of wage earning. For that reason, it is in the employer's best reason, uh, uh, best interest always to provide the best medical care we possibly can and, and uh, direct and control that medical care to get the petitioner back to work as quickly as humanly possible. Now, because we can select the employer and the, uh, sorry, the physician and the facilities, we really should be taking advantage of that. Let's choose great physicians. Let's uh, choose physicians who are very well versed with workers' compensation type injuries and who are going to get the petitioner back to work. Uh, New Jersey does not require payment for nonsense voodoo treatment. For example, things like chiropractic should really not be paid for or provided. It is not required. Again, it's really not medical care. Other things like acupuncture, experimental treatments, those can all be challenged and directed uh, by the employer or carrier. New Jersey has incredibly high network penetration, which means uh, if you're participating with a, uh, through an insurance carrier, uh, or through a third-party administrator, they should have a very good network of physicians in every different type of specialty. You're not going to have a problem with not getting a good physician. Also, we have access to uh, many physicians in uh, related big metropolitan markets, primarily Philadelphia down in South Jersey and New York City in North Jersey. Uh, we also control pharmacy and diagnostic. Uh, of course, there is no co-pays. Uh, we always say workers' compensation health insurance is the best health insurance you can get because there's no co-pays. 
uh, but we as the employer or carrier can select the facilities, uh, can select the diagnostic facilities, etc. This cuts down on nonsense, uh, things like nonsense MRIs with very low power magnets. We're talking about those half Tesla magnets or one Tesla magnets. That stuff doesn't really shouldn't come into your New Jersey case. Uh, things like open MRIs or stand-up MRIs, we really don't see the nonsense diagnostic because we can cut that right out. Um, Again, we can direct care, which means things like functional capacity evaluations are things that the employer can push the petitioner towards. Uh, in terms of choosing and selecting medical care, the most important role of the risk professional, the adjuster uh, who is handling the case from day to day, the medical only team, for example, is really making sure that the petitioner goes to medical appointments and medical appointments are scheduled on a timely basis. In other states where the petitioner can control and direct medical care, petitioners love to do the go to the urgent care on the day one of the accident, wait a couple weeks to go to the orthopedist. The orthopedist says, of course, hey, I need an MRI to really properly diagnose you. And we'll schedule that MRI for three or four weeks down the road. And then after they get the MRI, they'll go back to the orthopedist in three or four weeks. And then the orthopedist will say, hey, if I want to follow a conservative course of care, let's get you to physical therapy. And then uh, the claimant doesn't schedule that first physical therapy for three more weeks. All of a sudden, three months have elapsed from the date of loss, and they're just beginning physical therapy. I practice a lot in New York, and that's literally how they uh, direct their own care in New York, and that's because they can get away with it, and because, of course, there's no common sense in the New York workers' compensation system. In New Jersey, the employer has the ability to direct and control care and can go as far as to set medical appointments for the petitioner, so we should be taking advantage of that. Uh, really should be a situation where they go to the emergent care or the, uh, the emergency department, they go to the specialist within a few days, from the specialist right to the MRI facility, from the MRI facility right back to the specialist, and from the specialist, let's begin physical therapy as, as quickly as we can. So you know, within a week or two, we really have an active treatment course, and we have a treatment course that we're engaging with quickly. Uh, now that's really how these cases should be handled, and that would avoid a lot of the issues that we're gonna have with the motion for medical and uh, uh, temporary disability benefits. All right, just a reminder, this is totally live. I'm about a third of the way through the presentation, so please uh, put your questions in. Uh, okay, now, there are going to be moments where we're going to deny or dispute care. Obviously, in a denied case context, we're denying care. We're not going to be providing any care. Hey, this didn't happen at work. The petitioner is not without a remedy. The petitioner's remedy is to file a motion in the workers' compensation court saying, Judge, I need this specific care. It's not being provided to me. You should order my employer to provide it to me. Great. Uh, they have no right of going outside of the workers' compensation court and bringing some kind of civil action, for example, against the insurer or the carrier. And the reason I'm saying these words out loud is because it is a wonderful uh, threat that is made all the time to my clients. And, you know, we deny care because we're disputing a case. We're simply saying this didn't happen at work. And they're getting phone calls from an angry attorney who's saying, I'm going to sue you for bad faith, and I'll sue you in court, and you're going to be before a federal judge, and all sorts of crazy uh, arguments are brought up. Nope, uh, the petitioner's next step would be to file a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits before the workers' compensation court. Uh, and there's case law to that effect. All right, why do we care about this? Why am I talking about this? Uh, because directing and controlling care is one of our primary uh, advantages we have as the employer or carrier in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. We don't want to lose that. We don't want to lose medical control. You want to choose the absolute best physicians with the most experience and the best track record of getting petitioners healed and back to work in a full capacity as soon as possible. 
in states where the petitioner can choose and direct their own care, hint, hint, New York, they absolutely do not want to choose the best physicians. They're choosing physicians that they are being sent to by their attorneys, who everyone knows is going to keep them out of work for long periods of time. Uh, before New York statutory reforms, the average time before maximum medical improvement was reached was 6.4 years. That's insane. In New Jersey, uh, a year and a half to two years would be considered a very long treatment course. So uh, by controlling and directing care, and directing care to really good, experienced physicians, uh, we should be getting a better medical outcome for the petitioner. Also, there's attorney fee exposure. If the attorney for the petitioner files a motion with the workers' compensation court and says, my client is entitled to medical care that they did not receive, that attorney obtains a 20% fee on all of the treatment and lost time compensation that they won for their client. Well, that's a huge incentive for petitioner's counsel to file motions for med intent. Some of them are very well based in an absolute medical need. Sometimes they are not. And the reason they are not is because the petitioner is uh, maybe driving the boat, maybe pushing their attorney to file for things, and also maybe because the petitioner is seek petitioner's attorney is seeking opportunity for a fee. Remember that in New Jersey workers' compensation cases, it is extraordinarily rare for the petitioner's counsel to get any fee until the case is fully resolved. This is the exception to that, a motion for med intent in which the petitioner's counsel has been successful in obtaining additional medical benefits or lost time compensation will result in an immediate award of attorney's fees to petitioner's counsel. So again, there's an incentive built into the system. Now, let's talk about the parts of the motion. Uh, first, remember the burden is on the petitioner to show that they are entitled to additional care. It is on the, uh, the burden is on the petitioner to show uh, that they uh, are entitled to more medical care, medical care is related, causally related to the subject accident, that they requested medical care, and that that request for medical care was denied. Uh, they uh, bring this by filing a notice of motion. There are forms on the Workers' Compensation Court's website. These are all filed electronically. Uh, it is supported by an affidavit. The affidavit is typically written by the attorney, although it uh, really, uh, best practice would be to have it completed by the petitioner. The affidavit has to say, I was hurt at work, I am entitled to medical care, uh, the medical care is causally related to the subject accident, I've requested this care, my doctor wants me to get this care, and the employer has refused to authorize it. Uh, it needs to be supported by a medical report, so this mere statement of the petitioner by themselves is not enough. So all those things have to be um, found for the motion to be considered by the workers' compensation court. Okay, what happens next? What's the procedure? Uh, we, as the employer, resolve most of these at the time that the request is made. Most motions for med intent are going to be resolved amicably between the parties. Usually, they're avoided because the petitioner is requesting some specific medical care, we look at a medical record, we see that the doctor is requesting it, and it's simply authorized because maybe it is best practice or something that's necessary. Uh, I'm going to talk more about the edge cases where we cannot compromise. Again, most of the time we do, uh, so we're going to be talking about the, the percentage of cases that are not compromised. What's the procedure? Well, the motion is filed, and that is the date the clock starts ticking. Now, if the motion is filed, uh, at the same time the initial claim petition is filed, and that's the thing that kicks off the entire litigation, the employer has 30 days. That's actually pretty rare for a case to start by way of a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits being filed. It's much more typical that the claim petition is filed and then sometime during the course of care, the case goes off the rails and the petitioner then files a motion seeking benefits. If that happens, 
uh, we have 21 days to file our answering statement. Now, our answering statement here is pretty in-depth. I file an answering statement, which is the court-prescribed answering statement form. Uh, we also, in every single case uh, that we're disputing the benefits, we're going to file um, a certification of the attorney. We're going to provide medical records to the court, and 99% of the time filing a brief arguing why further additional medical care is not curative or necessary. Uh, within 30 days of the motion being filed, we have to get our IME. And that IME report then has to be provided to us within 35 days. This is incredibly hard to do, and it really means that when a motion for minute attempt comes in, the attorney or the risk professional has to say, am I going to fight this or not? If you're going to fight this, you're going to need medical evidence if it's not on its face defective, the current medical evidence that the petitioner has, which means you're going to go out and get an IME or a records review or be prepared to dispute that. And you don't have a lot of time to A, make the decision to do that, or B, go and secure the independent medical evaluation so that you're in the proper uh, posturing to fully defend the case. Now, uh, it is true that most of the time, as long as a uh, independent medical evaluation for the defense is scheduled, the judge of compensation will give you uh, leeway, give you enough time uh, to wait for that report to come in. It is very difficult to schedule a competent IME that quickly. It's also very difficult to get the report back within that 35 days. After the IME report is received or uh, after the uh, answer is filed, the case will be listed for a, a conference with the workers' compensation law judge. Now, the workers' compensation law judge typically will conference these cases and try to work it out between the parties. However, they don't have to. We, the matter could be set down for a trial, and uh, the trial procedure uh, would be that the petitioner testifies first. They always kick off a motion trial with the petitioner testifying. Now, I'm going to talk about this because this is when most contested motions for medical and temporary disability benefits are resolved. They're resolved with the petitioner getting on the stand and really explaining what is the medical treatment they want, why they uh, think it's going to be curative. They have to state on, on the record that they have not refused the care and they would actually accept it. Uh, most of the time when we go to a first listing of a motion for medical and temporary disability benefits, it is not listed for any kind of testimony. In fact, it would be kicked off or adjourned uh, for that testimony. After the petitioner testifies, the parties are probably going to convene in chambers. We're going to talk about this with the judge, and this is where most of them resolve. All right, after the petitioner testifies, the employer, of course, has the right to bring any fact witnesses. And this is important in a denied treatment context uh, where you're denying some jurisdictional aspect of the case. You're denying that the accident even occurred. You're denying that the person was your employee. You're denying that you have coverage. Some really basic defenses need some type of fact witness uh, or at least affidavits on behalf of the respondent. Uh, now, uh, remember that workers' compensation courts in New Jersey are now accepting video testimony, and this is very useful. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. All right, uh, next, the petitioner's medical witness testifies, and then after they testify, the respondent's medical witness, which is most typically going to be your IME or records review physician. Again, I'm going to remind you that that testimony can be conducted via video to save time, effort, blood, and treasure. Okay. New Jersey also has something called the Emergent Motion for Medical uh, and uh, Temporary Disability Benefits. And the Emergent Motion is kind of like a, uh, a life and death type motion. And this was uh, introduced into our statute recently. And the reason it was introduced into the statute is because the typical motion for medical and temporary disability benefits doesn't get resolved in a very timely manner. It takes months and months and usually a few court adjournments before the standard motion for med intent gets resolved. 
So uh, the uh, emergent motion was cooked up as a way to deal with true life and death emergencies. Uh, the motion gets filed within five days. The employer or carrier has to file a response. Uh, the case is conferenced via telephone by the with the workers' compensation judge within five days. The employer still has the right to go and get an IME. Uh, however, they only have 15 days from the date that the motion is filed to get their IME. And the case is then listed for a trial. And most typically, that trial is going to be held continuously. The petitioner in these types of cases literally has to state that it is a life and death scenario. It has to be from the treating physician. The treating physician uh, has to prove that or state that the uh, petitioner has an injury, needs cause-related treatment. And if the petitioner does not get the treatment, there will be an irreparable harm to the petitioner. And really, I've seen this very rarely. I mean, I've defended thousands and thousands of workers' compensation claims uh, since the statute was changed to allow for the emergent motion. And we've seen very, very, very few. I mean, just a handful of them meet this emergent standard of irreparable harm. Literally has to be life and death. I can also say from experience that when, these, when the statute was first changed, we saw a lot of emergent motions uh, that were really not emergent, uh, really was over things like a medication somebody wanted or a test, absolutely not appropriate for an emergent motion. When an emergent motion is filed in the workers' compensation court, the supervisory judge decides whether it gets listed on the emergent track or the normal uh, motion track, or maybe it's defective and they bounce it out completely, uh, but there's absolutely going to be some discretion going to be utilized by the supervising judge to determine if that's really necessary and if it's truly emergent. Now, how do we defend motions for men in temp? We've already told you that they're pretty scary because we'll lose control of medical, which is one of our only really good uh, benefits or advantages in New Jersey. And I've already told you that uh, they're dangerous because we could have to pay a fee on medical treatment. And a fee on a surgery in New Jersey, which is, by the way, a usual and customary state, could be sixty or $70,000 for a surgery, which is 20% uh, on top of that, which means a fourteen dollars or $15,000 attorney's fee award. That's a lot of money to pay on top of something uh, just for someone filing a couple pieces of paper. So how do we defend them? Uh, first, I look to the rules. Rules, rules, rules. I'm a rules nerd. Uh, I've literally uh, written uh, the practice guide uh, to New Jersey with my great co-author, uh, Rick Rubenstein, which really talks about how we apply the regulations and how the case law applies. And let's take a look at the rules. So the rules are very clear about what type of claims are appropriate for a motion for med intent. Uh, the rules, for example, indicate that it actually has to be for uh, medical treatment, not just temp. Uh, that there has to be a medical record saying that there is a need for this treatment and that it is causally related and that the claimant would actually undergo the care if it was offered to them. Uh, of course, the claimant has to request the treatment first, which oftentimes is skipped. The claimant just simply says, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go file a motion. Uh, and they don't even request it directly from the employer. Give them a chance to respond. All right, next. Uh, I think the best practice is to file an answering statement in every single case, which is be accompanied by a certification with exhibits. And by exhibits, I really mean the medical records so that the judge of compensation is in a great position to decide the motion. I want to show the judge of compensation the medical progression of the case. I want to arrange it historically for them, chronologically, uh, from newest going back to the oldest. And I want the judge of compensation to see that medical care has been consistently provided to the petitioner all along. Uh, that it should typically be uh, submitted to the court by way of certification. In my office, we also always submit a brief. Sometimes it's just a boilerplate brief, but it's always a brief 
arguing as to why what the legal standard is in the motion and explaining to the judge why this uh, motion for medical benefits does not meet the standard. All right. I think it's important to present proofs in the cases we do can present proofs. Okay, this is totally live. You can hear this construction going on downstairs. Sorry about that. If you're banging, it's not me. Uh, present proofs. And a reminder, we can present our proofs via video now. Uh, the courts will allow this, and particularly in a circumstance like a hurry-up uh, trial on a motion to resolve issues. This is very important for my employers uh, who do not want to have to take uh, a supervisor or a manager uh, out of the workplace for a couple days so they can go to court and testify. This way I can tell them, you can stay in your office, you're gonna appear over a webcam. That's really great. Uh, next, uh, I always wanna ask the very basic question, which, which is, did the petitioner even actually ever request this care? That's important to know. Uh, many of these motions are defective on their face because there is no documented request for the care to the employer. Uh, I also wanna remind everyone that there is a Benson standard the Benson versus Coca-Cola case stands for the proposition that uh, where the petitioner's request is futile or would be futile, uh, they don't have to make the request for care. Uh, that's okay. And, and sometimes we'll have a petitioner come into court and go, look, I was injured. I was going to the hospital. There was no time to file a motion or I needed this care emergently. There was no time to file the motion. And so I've gotten the treatment and now I want the employer to pay me back. The Benson standard is, yeah, requesting the treatment would have been futile. That's fine. Uh, you don't have to request it, but you do have to show that it was curative, that it actually helped you. And so it works both ways. Um, all right. Uh, again, this is a live presentation. We're almost at the end. Please type in some questions so we have some things to talk about at the end. All right. Let's talk about uh, some more ideas on how to defend these motions. First, uh, do they actually want the treatment? This is such a foundational question, but it gets skipped. Uh, Petitioner's attorneys will file a motion that'll say uh, the doctor wants them to have invasive treatment XYZ, right? They want them to have a four-level laminectomy with fusion. And the doctor requested it in March, and here it is April, and it hasn't been scheduled yet. Therefore, I'm filing this motion saying that they need this care. All right, that's great. But does the petitioner want a four-level fusion? Maybe they've decided there's no way they wanted to go that under invasive care. Uh, maybe they've got a family member who had that same treatment and said, look at their outcome. I don't want to do this to myself. I'll be a cripple. Uh, and so for those reasons, we put them to the proofs. The statement has to be coming from the petitioner saying they would accept the care. We also want to look at the medical record and see if the petitioner has been offered this care multiple times and turned it down already. Okay, that's happened many times in the cases of surgery. Uh, also, sometimes a motion for temporary disability benefits is filed alone, meaning Somebody saying, yeah, I'm back to work, or I'm not back to work, but, and there is no more curative treatment, but I'm, uh, I was unpaid for these number of weeks or months, and I deserve that payment. That's best resolved at the end of the case. It's really not appropriate for a motion for men and temp on its own. All right. Now let's imagine uh, that we've either compromised on a motion for men and temp, or an order's been entered after a trial. Uh, please remember, a compromise is not appealable, but a judgment is. So if you lose a motion for med and temp and it's going to require us to do something, provide medical treatment or lost time benefits, that is appealable as of right immediately. You do not make an appeal within the workers' compensation court itself. You go right to big boy court, the appellate division of New Jersey's superior court, and that appeal would get filed right down there in Trenton immediately. Um, I want us to be very cautious about the specific wording of an order. If we are gonna compromise on a motion for med and temp, I want us to be very careful about what follow-on treatment is covered by the motion for med and temp. 
if the motion was for simply a surgery, let's say, or for 12 weeks of physical therapy, I want to confine the order to just that thing that was the subject of the motion and not every treatment that ever happens for the rest of the life of this petitioner. Because what will happen there is A, you'll lose control of treatment after that point, but B, you'll also be facing a demand for attorney's fees on not just the item that was the focus of the motion, but for any treatment that happens until the case gets resolved, which could really blow up your exposure in that case. And that's why I don't like statements on orders following motions for MedInTemp, which say things like, fee to be determined in the future, or fee to abide. And that's like a famous one or a common one that I see on these orders, very generic words that say, fee to abide. That is dangerous. I, I don't think it's a good practice for attorneys to allow fees to abide. A, you're incentivizing your adversarial or opposing counsel uh, to try to throw in kitchen sink treatment, try to blow up treatment as much as you can, but also B, you're representing a client uh, and you're gonna tell the client, oh, we didn't, you know, I resolved this matter, I compromised, or the judge made this decision, but there wasn't enough information before the court for the, for the court to actually make an attorney's fee. Uh, that to me seems, too, too generous to opposing counsel. So I really want there to be a very specific award of attorney's fees made at that time. It should be reasonable and it should reflect the value of the medical care that the petitioner's counsel uh, obtained on behalf of their own client. All right, so that's after the order is entered. Uh, let's switch gears here a little bit just to talk about uh, medicinal marijuana. Yes, it is allowed now in New Jersey under the Compassionate Use Medicinal Marijuana Act. Uh, the Compassionate Use Act, which has been the law here for five or six years, keeps expanding and they keep adding more and more uh, conditions which uh, require the use of medicinal marijuana. Uh, okay, can the judge order someone into the medicinal marijuana program? No. Um, can the judge order us to pay for treatment in the medicinal marijuana program? No. Can the judge order us to reimburse the petitioner for treatment uh, that the petitioner has gone out and received on their own through the medicinal marijuana program? Yes. So New Jersey is following the great body of other states. Uh, this is also how it's handled in New York. Uh, again, the courts cannot um, direct a carrier or employer to pay for medicinal marijuana. It is still a federal Schedule One substance, so absolutely cannot be paid for, uh, but they can order reimbursement. The only way the reimbursement can work is directly to the petitioner. They cannot uh, be paying anything to the defense, dispensary or the physicians who are uh, dispensing this. It has to be directly to the petitioner. Uh, we do have a couple cases now, the Watson case, the McNeary case, uh, these cases uh, seem to be how the courts are going. It seems that judges are deciding that they don't really care that they're uh, ordering reimbursement for things that are uh, federally banned and prohibited. And somehow the logic behind all of this is, ah, oh, it's better that they're on medicinal marijuana than long-term opiates. So, you know, the same people that we were scared that they'd get addicted to opiates, let's put them on this other stuff. As an employer or carrier, I see zero benefit uh, yeah, opiates aren't great, uh, agreed, and yes, opiates do come uh, with tons and tons of other uh, concordant problems, for example, constipation, so your opiate, uh, your chronic opiate uh, patient is going to require uh, stool softeners and other things to deal with all sorts of other concomitant medical conditions, uh, but from a dollars and cents perspective, the medicinal marijuana in this state is running at about, uh, well, a two-week supply is about $500, so you're talking about $1,000 a month. So dollars to donuts, you're not really saving any money in the medicinal marijuana program. And also, uh, the only uh, context where you might do better on uh, putting the claimant into medicinal marijuana is one where 
your Medicare secondary payer allocation is keeping you from being able to resolve the case. So you've got a case where maybe you could lump sum Section 20 it for $30,000, but the Medicare secondary payer uh, allocation comes back at $200,000 because they're worried about future medicals, in, including opiates. Well, if you get the claimant onto medicinal marijuana, which we know is a Schedule One substance, and again, the federal government will never pay for it uh, because it is Schedule uh, substance and is not covered by Part D, then you could eliminate all that uh, exposure for future medications and maybe cram down the value of that allocation uh, while still taking Medicare secondary interest into account. Um, of course, that's a little bit untested because this has really only been happening in New Jersey for about a year, year and a half at this point. Uh, but that is really the only advantage that I perceive uh, for employers in regards to the medicinal marijuana program. Um, okay, also interestingly, in March of 2019, New Jersey's appellate division, in a very sloppy decision, uh, says uh, that an employee cannot be discriminated against because of their medicinal marijuana use, even if they're operating vehicles. So here we have a hearse driver uh, driving for a funeral company, uh, gets in a car accident, uh, they drug test him. He turns out he's positive for medicinal marijuana. Now, the New Jersey Compassionate Use Medicinal Marijuana Act, CUMA, specifically says that employers do not have to make any workplace accommodations uh, for medicinal marijuana users. So you've got someone on medicinal marijuana, and uh, they're coming to work stoned, and, but they've got to operate heavy machinery. Uh, theoretically, their job would not be protected. Uh, however, the appellate division has now uh, uh, interpreted this to say, oh, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, you, you, they actually do have workplace job uh, protections. Uh, New Jersey's law against discrimination applies. The CUMA only limits you uh, or only states that you don't have to make it a workplace accommodation. But if they have an out-of-work need for medicinal marijuana, which then impairs their ability to do work, you still can't discriminate against them. So it's crazy. That's going up to New Jersey's Supreme Court uh, because it's a very sloppy decision that doesn't actually get to all the issues. And we would expect that to come down uh, probably early next year. Uh, Supreme Court's out for the summer term, so the earliest they can get back to this will be October. And I think we're going to see this in January come back. All right. Uh, I hope we've covered a lot of interesting things today. Let's uh, do some live questions and answers. I please think, uh, I hope people are typing in questions. I'm going to come over here and open up my control panel. All right. I got a bunch. This is great. Uh, and if you haven't typed them in yet, please do it now. All right. Jill uh, asked a couple questions, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer all of them. These are good ones. Jill's first question is, Greg, being that the employer directs care, are IMEs frowned upon by the New Jersey Workers' Compensation? You call the board, but it's a court. Uh, no, not really. Uh, the difference between New Jersey and other states is you're really only going to see one or two IMEs per case, and they're really at the end, and they're really to determine permanency. And the reason for that is during the course of care, you, your risk professional, your adjuster, uh, can constantly communicate with the medical provider and shape and direct care. Uh, and you really do see that medical care uh, really doesn't extend in a normal case beyond that normal six to eight month period during their active medical treatment. And then, you know, they, uh, they reach a medical plateau and they're re released. You're not going to have a challenge really in New Jersey reaching maximum medical improvement or plateau. Uh, so really, IMEs in New Jersey in most cases come into play at the very end of the case when the only issue left before the workers' compensation court is impairment. Now, New Jersey's a whole man state, 
So that means uh, it is not a, a, a wage loss state. And what that means is the judge is simply making awards based on the injury type and the perceived impairment, uh, which really doesn't mean anything because you could have an injured worker in New Jersey uh, who gets their arm chopped off in a terrible workplace accident, but if they come back to work and are working the same job for more money and no lost time, uh, they would still be eligible uh, for a permanent partial disability award, which is different than a labor uh, attachment state. Uh, Jill also asked the question, does New Jersey have a distinction between palliative and curative care? Absolutely. Curative care is what's required under our statute. Palliative care, once the petitioner has reached a medical plateau, and now we're just keeping them comfortable, and we're just you know, really doing what's necessary, yeah, that's required, but that really should not be the focus of a motion for med and temp, and rarely is. A motion for medical and temporary disability benefits should be for curative care to really restore function, uh, reduce impairment, and get the petitioner back to work. Uh, is time off for appointments compensable in New Jersey? This is the, Jill's third question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, time lost from work so they can attend medical treatment uh, would be uh, compensated in New Jersey. Uh, Dan asked the question, when we are concerned about compensability, do you recommend paying into good faith or not authorizing treatment until compensability is determined? All right, great question, Dan. I think what you're saying here is, hey, Greg, a new accident happens at work. We really don't have time to investigate it or We've got some questions about it. We're doing our arising out of in the course of employment investigation. We haven't made a determination yet. Uh, Dan, most of my clients would accept the case without prejudice and start offering medical care and treatment until they can determine whether or not it truly arose out of in the course of employment and is work-related. Uh, New Jersey is a wonderful state in that when you file your first report of injury with the state, which is really the only thing uh, that is required, uh, you don't, you're not stuck with that. And at any point up until the beginning of the trial, so this could be years away, you can say, you know what, we've now done our investigation. This is not compensable. We are not accepting payment. You simply write a letter to the petitioner. It's very simple. Dear petitioner, upon investigation of your workers' compensation claim, we have determined it is not compensable under New Jersey's act, period. Sign it, send it, you're done. It's all over. So you can always provide treatment and provide lost time compensation in New Jersey without prejudice to your ability to later determine that the case is not compensable. Not a problem at all. Uh, last question comes from Stephen. If you have an unwitnessed accident and the employee does not report the incident within 24 hours, which is the company's policy, is it wise to deny treatment or just pay for the initial treatment? So interesting moment is uh, you've got an employee who gets hurt uh, or tells you uh, a report that they're hurt. You have an internal policy that they violated. They haven't given anybody notice of this. They haven't gone to their supervisor. Uh, it might be grounds for you to terminate that employee for failing to follow a work rule. Uh, you can still uh, discipline that employee or suspend them. You can do whatever you want, uh, but that's really not gonna affect the compensability of the case. Violating a work rule, not complying with a work rule, uh, is not going to uh, be determinative of whether or not the injury and accident arose out of in the course of employment. Uh, in general, I would counsel most clients that uh, although they violated a work rule or a workplace reporting rule and didn't report the injury timely, uh, I would not tell them that that is a generally sustainable ground to deny a case. Uh, in those cases, I would generally uh, advise a client, yep, I think you should provide care provisionally until you can complete um, your medical investigation, until you can complete uh, your entire investigation. All right, 
Uh, that's all our questions today. I hope you join me next month. If you have any questions that I didn't answer today or maybe uh, were spurred by reading the interesting or listening to the interesting questions and answers from Jill, Dan, and Stephen, uh, please feel free to email me or call me. I'm happy to talk about these topics with you. Next month, we're going to talk about uh, defending occupational exposure claims, which will be um, repetitive occupational orthopedic injuries. We're going to talk about pulmonary injuries, respiratory injuries, hearing loss type claims. So please join us for that. All right. I hope you have a great week and enjoy your long weekend and a great Labor Day. Bye, everybody.